recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, May 31st, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and I thank you for listening. I might bore everybody here tonight, or you'll just think I'm nuts. I'm going to open tonight's program, but with a very long analogy, an analogy that basically describes how I approached biblical studies maybe 17 years ago in prison. When when I was in my mid to late 20s, I decided that I was not going to be a cop forever, and I thought I would teach myself about computers. So after a few months of tinkering, I wanted to learn how to program. And over about a year or so of my spare time, I taught myself how to do so in a language called C. And later I learned a lot about C++ when it became available, when it was developed in the early 90s. Computer programming, like Bible study, is a never-ending task, and I never heard a programmer who claimed to know everything. Just like there shouldn't be a pastor that claims to know everything. A well-written computer program has a main loop. The loop is basically a mathematical algorithm written in code that only a programmer understands. And then it's compiled into instructions that only a particular computer understands. The loop runs so long as certain conditions are maintained. And very complex main loops accept and receive data from other sources operating on that data for as long as they run. Your web browser is an example of one of those main loops, a program that's a loop that runs until you shut it off. To do everything expected of it by a programmer, the main loop is designed to call a lot of other functions called subroutines in order to perform the tasks which it needs to execute. Each of these subroutines does something very specific, and most of them accept data of certain values, operate on the data, and return another value of a specific type to the main loop. Only some of the data in a computer program are represented by variables, algebraic expressions representing data that can change under certain conditions. Other data are represented by constants. Constants are values that never change. Many of the subroutines themselves call upon other subroutines to perform their tasks. Opening a new tab in your browser, the main loop calls calls up code which executes one of these subroutines to create that tab, right? Computer programs can be extremely complex. And in order to truly understand how one operates, one must understand how the main loop operates, and then one must understand the operation of every one of the subroutines which it relies upon. One must also understand all of the data types in the program, all of the data types that the program uses, which data types are constants, which data types are variables. Of these, you have two types. You have local variables, and you have global variables. A global variable, you could also have a global constant. Global constants usually are are the same throughout every single function of the program. They don't change. A 
of the variables, one must understand how each variable is subject to change and what happens when a user enters an incorrect value so that a fatal exception may be caught to avoid a crash. The most common form of fatal exception I can remember encountering occurred when a subroutine returned a data type or value that the calling function did not understand. If the calling function doesn't understand a data type that's returned or a value that's returned, well, well it's going to crash unless there's an exception that can handle why that variable is different in this case. In my own brief career in MIS, or Management Information Systems, I wrote some programs that took months and exceeded a quarter of a million lines of my own code. That, that, hey, a quarter million lines of code in a program really isn't that much. There are programs today that have many millions of lines of code. Microsoft Windows is an operating system, but it's still a program. It has over 50 million lines of code. Now, you may be wondering what the hell all of this has to do with the Bible. When I first read the Bible, I had already heard the Christian identity message. And I read the Bible through from cover to cover. And then I started to study the Bible critically to see if the message was true. As I read, I realized that the Bible, too, was like a, was like a computer program. It didn't have one main loop, though. It had two. I guess Yahweh God writes his own compiler so he can do that. That's the way I see it anyway. The first loop ran from the rebellion of the fallen angels to the destruction of all their works in a lake of fire. The second loop ran from the creation of Adam and the establishment up to the establishment of the kingdom of heaven. Now, another programmer might count this second main loop as merely a subroutine, since it began after the first main loop. But since it extends past the end of the termination of that first loop, it must be another main loop apart from the first. Yahweh God does what the programmer calls multiprocessing, which is the ability to execute different loops simultaneously either on different processes or what it's called multi-threading on the same processor. Now, this is an analogy, right? Of course, other programmers might describe all of this in different ways, but this was, this was how it appeared to me, and there's reasons that I saw this that way. These two main loops, the loop, the, the fallen angels loop, and, and the children of Adam loop interact with each other for as long as they are both allowed to execute. Inside this main program, there were many subroutines. And to understand their functions, we had to also understand the, the, the types and values of the data that they process. There were data elements which were of God's creation. And there were other elements that were antithetical to God's creation. These elements, these elements are always constants. They don't change. Their values do not change, if you get what I'm driving at. 
you're either part of the creation or you're part of the corruption. And when you're part of the creation of God, you will always be part of the creation of God. Your value does not change. When you're part of the corruption, you're always part of the corruption. Your value does not change. There is the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But something that is not seed of the woman could not be changed into the seed of the woman since there is no function in the program which executes such a process. It's not anywhere in Scripture. In addition to these two constants, there were variables. One example of such a variable is a man of type Adam who is called in a state of apostasy. And therefore, the data returned when he is passed to certain functions may be quite different than when another man of type Adam, which is not in a state of apostasy, is passed to the same function. So Adam, the state of Adam can be a variable, but Adamic man is a constant. His value does not change. One thing that was absolutely evident to me, in the end, if one attempts to pass a bastard into the kingdom of heaven function, then the entire Bible is useless and the creation of God will crash, because that is a fatal exception. It must be a fatal exception, because the first law of God is kind after kind. The processor won't be able to understand that one. By now, you might think I've lost it. But all of this is exactly how we must understand the Bible. To understand a computer program, when a constant value is, is violated and changed, you have to know, you better know, or if a constant value can possibly change, you better know exactly how it's going to affect every function in that program. When a, when a variable is changed, or when a function is rewritten, you have to know exactly how it's going to affect every other function in that program that calls that rewritten function. You have to know how the main loop calls that rewritten function because it might crash. It, you, you might return the wrong data type to the main loop and cause an exception. The same thing's true with the Bible. We have constants and we have variables. We have things that Yahweh God allows to change, such as the state of Adamic man. But we have things that are constants that never change, such as the material type of Adamic man. That's a constant. It doesn't change. We're all created. If our seed is in us, we're all in his image and his likeness. And we cannot sin, because sin will not be imputed to us. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. When you read the Bible, every single episode in Scripture is like a little subroutine in a computer programmer, in a computer program. And you have to look at the variables, and you have to look at the constants. 
And if you don't get the data values right, you're not going to be able to understand the Bible. You're not going to understand it. You're going to run into all sorts of confusion because you're confusing the data values. Ruth, she was a Moabite, right? Oh, so God approves race mixing. No, not at all. By that time, the children of Manasseh inhabited the land of Moab. Ruth was called a geographical Moabite, but it can be proven from the book of Ruth, from Scripture, that she was an Israelite. There is plenty of evidence to prove that. So, Yahweh said that the children of Moab should never enter the congregation. That's what he said. It's in Deuteronomy 23. Therefore, do we expect Yahweh to have violated his own program and passed a fatal exception to, to the main loop? No, of course we shouldn't. If we don't understand the data values, the constants, and the variables, we won't understand the Bible. We won't understand each episode. There is no conflict in Scripture. There's conflict in our understanding. Some of us just can't read the code. There's no conflict in Scripture if we believe Scripture. Yes, there's a few places that are corrupt, that are demonstrably corrupt. Corrupt. We have to show how and why those places are corrupt if we're going to label them as corrupt. That's the errors of men in copying manuscripts over the ages, or perhaps some of those errors were on purpose. But the general framework of Scripture is constant and does not change. The values which Yahweh God assigned to his creation are constant and do not change. We have to identify the variables and see where the corruptions of Yahweh's creation are so that we can understand them in Scripture. We have to identify the constants and identify Yahweh's creation in what he called good so that we can understand the scripture. So when you want to interpret a passage of scripture in a particular way, you had better look at all the rest of scripture and consider it to see if your interpretation agrees with the rest of Scripture, with all those other functions. Your little subroutine has to agree with all those other little subroutines because if there's a conflict, it's not in the Word of God. It's in your thinking. I always thought that learning how to read quarter million lines a program code helps me with my comprehension later on when I began reading scripture. Maybe I just like to think that, so I think that my years of studying programming weren't exactly wasted because I'll obviously probably never be a programmer again, 
But that, that's the critical thinking that, that goes into um, the analysis of anything, of any um, large data sets in any field. You, you have to think critically, and you have to sit back, and you have to consider all the possibilities when you interpret a passage of Scripture, just like when you change a subroutine in a complex program. It's the same. It's the same method and a different application. And, okay, I'm really not losing it, but I, I thought I'd try to explain that on those terms and, and maybe help people see the way I approach Scripture and the, the, the importance of having those um, skills in, in critical analysis what, when we want to become interpreters of Scripture. And with this, we will, well, we'll probably refer back to this paradigm as we proceed with our exhibition explaining to seed line. And this is part 22. And we're going to begin discussing to seed line in the New Testament. There are some things I want to go back to in the Old Testament. And, and um, that there are some myths I want to defuse, and I'll probably do that later on in June. I won't do it tonight. But we're not quite done with the Old Testament. We can start at Genesis. And we can read through to the Revelation. And everybody, all Christians should do that at least once in their lives. Start at Genesis chapter 1, line 1, and just read the Bible through. The first time I did it probably took about two or three months. I don't remember. But I read maybe 10, 12, 15 chapters a night, sometimes less. If we start at Genesis and read through to the Revelation, and we should do that once, at least, even then, we cannot understand everything in Genesis until after we read through to the end of the Revelation. This is because not everything was revealed to the writer at the time in which Genesis was written. Genesis is a parable. Its language is allegorical. But allegorical or not, it is certainly not a complete history of everything which happened up until the fall of Adam. As it is recorded in Matthew chapter 13, from verse 34, all these things spoke Jesus unto the multitude in parables. And without a parable spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. And if you haven't noticed, I'll be quoting mostly from the King James Version tonight seeing that there were things kept secret from the foundation of the world, we must comprehend all of the words of the New Testament and then re-examine the Old Testament 
and Genesis in particular, in order, to, in order to see how it is that they should be interpreted. Because there are things that are not explained in Genesis, we have to take all the words of Christ through the Gospels and the Revelation and some of the things said by the, by the apostles who explain things that Christ explained to them. And then we have to go back and look at Genesis. And that was the basis for my Genesis interpretation, which I did here over the past several months, entitled Pragmatic Genesis. And, and I pray that maybe over the next 10 years I can do some writing and, and actually perfect my notes. But that, that's okay. That's another story. Paul of Tarsus reinforces the notion that the things kept secret from the foundation of the world were revealed in Christ. In Romans chapter 16, where he said, Now to him, meaning God, now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but is now made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. So we see that Paul agrees with Matthew, where he records the words of Christ, that things, there were things kept secret from the foundation of the world. If those things were kept secret from the foundation of the world, we won't find them in Genesis. There are, amazingly, people who insist that the prophets were only concerned with the future. And I've run into these clowns. And that the revelation of Joshua Christ was only concerned with the future. If the, revela if the revelation were only concerned with the future when it was written, how could Christ reveal things kept secret from the beginning? In Isaiah chapter 41, we read something to the contrary, where Yahweh is challenging the idols of Israel. Produce your cause, saith Yahweh. Bring forth your strong reason, saith the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what shall happen. The future things. But then it says, let them show the former things, what they be that we may consider them and know the later end of them, or declare us things for to come. What, I, what Yahweh is telling us to Isaiah is that if we don't understand origins, we're not going to understand destinies. Isaiah 41.22 Verse 23 Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that ye are gods. Yeah, do good or evil, that we may be dismayed and behold it together. Behold, ye are of nothing, and your work of naught, and abomination is he that chooseth you. Yahweh speaking to the idols. I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come from the rising of the sun. Shall he call upon my name, 
and he shall come upon princes as upon mortar, and as the potter treadeth clay, who has declared from the beginning that we may know, and before time that we may say he is righteous. Yea, there is none that showeth, yea, there is none that declareth, yea, there is none that heareth your words. So we see that the words of the prophets reveal the past as well as the future, which is manifest where Yahweh said, from verse 22, let them bring forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things, what they be, that we may consider them and know the later end of them. A second witness that the revelation may also deal with the past is evident in Revelation chapter 17 in verse 10, where it says, and there are seven kings, five are fallen past tense, and one is, and the other is not yet come. While there are other such indications, this one, that seven kings are described as five of them had already fallen, is rather explicit. Once we realize that the revelation can describe things which are past, we have a greater possibility of attaining a correct interpretation of its many prophecies. I'm going to read Revelation chapter 12. I'm going to focus on some, I'm going to make some comments which focus on the things that had already occurred because that's all that's important to the scope of this conversation when the Revelation was written. to make a comment in the Christianity chat real quick, excuse me. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent, called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren, who accuses them before our God day and night, 
and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice, ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman, which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times, and half a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth a flood of water after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood, and the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman when he went to make war with the remnant of her seed which kept the commandments of God and had the testimony of Jesus Christ. There are many aspects of this prophecy. There are some aspects of this prophecy because it's evident that it has multiple fulfillments which are, as of yet, unfulfilled, or which may be fulfilled again, depending on how we understand the word heaven. The word heaven, in the Revelation, in Revelation chapter 6, for instance, speaking about the fall of the Roman Empire, the four horsemen of Rome, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as it's popularly called, Heaven and the sun and the moon and the stars there clearly refer to governments and people on earth. Here, just as well, heaven may refer to governments and people on earth. There are people who claim that Satan is in heaven. The revelation says that his place was found no more in heaven. Now, if the Christ child is born, and the Christ child is not going to be born again, he's already been born from above, then there are parts of this prophecy in the Revelation that cannot be fulfilled again. And if Satan is persecuting the Christ child on earth, then Satan is no longer in heaven, and his place is found no more in heaven. Now here Satan is equated. Satan is equated to that old serpent called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. If Satan is equated to the serpent, that old serpent, that has to be a reference to Genesis chapter 3. The Satan, which was expelled from heaven, is equated with the serpent of Genesis, that old serpent, and thereby the two are co-equal. While part of John's vision is written for the future, for instance, the flood from the mouth of the serpent, which represents... The Edomite, well, well, let's start a little sooner than that. Herod 
was an Edomite. And he represents the dragon who tried to destroy the Christ child. And it's very clear in history. That, that that should not be disputed. If Herod, being an Edomite, represents the dragon which tried to kill the Christ child, we have another insight into the nature of the serpent, the great dragon called the serpent, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. And if the great dragon is the serpent, the devil, and Satan, but yet it could be represented by the serpent in the Genesis 3 account in the Garden of Eden, and it could be represented by Herod the Great, who was an Edomite in the first century at the time of Christ, then we see that Satan is not just an individual. Satan is an entity. And there's other evidence of that, which we will get to soon. There's one, the, the way the Revelation depicts this war in heaven is that the rebellious side had one single leader who took a third of the stars of heaven with him, and that's interpreted as a third of the angels of God, and that's fine because there's no doubt the dragon fought and his angels against Michael and his angels. But the entire entity is considered Satan, as well as the original leader of the rebellion, if you want to put it in those terms. And that has to be because Herod, was the dragon in the first century who tried to destroy the Christ child. There's no basis for any other interpretation of that dragon that tried to destroy the Christ child. And when the dragon saw that, he was cast under the earth. So the dragon is an entity. It's not an individual. It can be an individual at any given time, but it's an entity as well. The serpent was able to cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman. That's not a literal snake, which is vomiting. It represents the same entity down through history, which has sent this flood after the woman and has persecuted her and was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, the remainder of her descendants. So these things are entities. They're not mere individuals. And Revelation chapter 12 has to describe something in the very distant past, because first, it's not in our historical knowledge, it's not in our scripture, this war in heaven. It's not recorded anywhere. Yet, it must have happened by the time Adam was placed into the Garden of Eden. Why? Because the serpent is there. And this Satan 
which fought in in heaven is that old serpent. We also know this from the words of Christ in Luke chapter 10, where he speaks of the fall of Satan as if as it was in the past. And he says, well, and Luke says, I'm sorry, Luke writes from verse 17, describing the 70 apostles whom Christ had sent off to announce the gospel. And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils, and that word there in Greek is demons, even the demons are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld, past tense, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from the heaven. Well, Christ was God. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt, hurt you. All the power of the enemy. In the Revelation, Satan was cast out to earth and his angels with him. However, Christ in Luke uses Satan only in the singular and does not mention the angels. Therefore, we can determine that Christ is using the word Satan collectively of the entire group. This is because Christ is also equating that Satan cast out of heaven with the serpents and scorpions, which were, which were basically metaphors which he was using to describe people extant in his own time. These serpents and scorpions aren't bugs and snakes. These serpents and scorpions are people, all the power of the enemy. In the Genesis chapter 3 event, we see one serpent. And here we see many serpents classified under the banner of all the power of the enemy. In the Genesis event, we see a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the gospel accounts, we see men as bad trees. Yet, Yahweh created no bad trees. And we'll get to the bad trees momentarily. Where did Yahweh create bad trees? Scripture allows us to determine that there is a race of bad trees, as we will see in the gospel, and their origin is with the fallen angels when we look at all these little subroutines through the New Testament, we should be able to put this together. Collectively, all these bad trees, all these fallen angels, they are Satan. Now, this may be considered a hypothesis. However, the balance of the passages which we examine in this context shall fully support the hypothesis. The story of the ministry of John the Baptist is accounted very similarly in Matthew and Luke. Here it is in part from Matthew. From verse 1, Matthew chapter 3. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, 
and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair, and a leather girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said to them, O generation of vipers, and that could have been translated serpents, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And we have to be careful with this line that says, bring forth fruits meet for repentance. Once we understand the nature of the Pharisees and Sadducees, we can't really imagine that they could repent. In fact, we will see that they can't repent when we continue with Matthew. Why are they challenged to repent? Because God always challenges his enemies to repent. The demonstration is so that we can see that they can't possibly repent. Cain was told, if thou doest well, shall thou not be accepted? Well, when Cain was told that, he went right out, well, in the next verse of Genesis, and he killed his brother. So he didn't do well, even though he had been challenged to do well. Paul of Tarsus challenged Herod Agrippa II in the, in the closing chapters of the book of Acts. I believe it's Acts chapter 26. And Paul said that he, he asked Herod Agrippa a rhetorical question and said, you do believe in the prophets, don't you? And Herod Agrippa had no choice but to answer in the affirmative. But what he did instead, just like the snake that he is, he said, so quickly do you persuade me to be a Christian? He evaded the question without answering it. Typical Jew lawyer, if I ever saw one. Paul challenged Herod Agrippa. To, to, to deny or profess the prophets, he slithered around the question. Yahweh challenged Cain to do well. He went out and killed his brother. John the Baptist challenges these Pharisees and Sadducees to bring forth fruits meet for repentance. We also have to be careful with the statement here that God could raise up stones as children of Abraham. And of course, well, he is God, right? We're, we're not going to doubt the veracity of the statement. But a lot of fools attempt to say that because God can raise up children of Abraham from stones, then the door is open to, for anyone 
to be a child of Abraham. That it's, that, that it's only a metaphorical or an allegorical child, that one could be a child of Abraham, and race doesn't matter. Those people are missing the point, which can only be understood in the context of the balance of Scripture. When we imagine that, we have to go out and look at every other verse which talks about the children of Abraham and what their nature is. When we examine all those other verses, we find that it's a constant. The children of Abraham come from Abraham's loins. It's not a variable. It's a constant. It can't be changed. Many clear statements of Scripture cite that very explicitly. Yahweh can raise up children of Abraham from stones, but the truth is that those stones would not be, or those children raised from stones, would not be the heirs to the covenant. So just because John the Baptist says that God can raise up children of Abraham from stones, he's not inferring that those children raised from stones could be the heirs of the promise, which came through Jacob. And Romans, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 3 and John chapter 8 make that very clear. Continuing with Matthew chapter 3, verse 10. And now also the axe is laid under the root of the trees, Therefore, every tree which brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Indeed, I baptize you with water under repentance, but he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's an analogy very similar to the parable of the wheat that tares. The gospel of Christ is to separate the wheat from the tares. The axe is already laid to the root of the trees because there are good trees and there are bad trees. And a bad tree has no good fruit on its branches. If your origin is bad, you cannot possibly ever be good. And that's a constant. It's not a variable. And if your origin is good, you cannot possibly be bad. Christ himself clarifies this same thing in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree, every good tree, there are no exceptions, brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. 
a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, period, words of Christ. Good trees are a constant. They're not a variable. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Words of Christ, bad trees, they're a constant. They're not a variable. Don't expect one to be good tomorrow or have a good apple on its branches. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Bad trees, they don't have a chance for repentance. Here we see that false prophets are directly connected to bad trees. That's another subject which shall soon be visited. I should say revisited. Because we have to go to Jude to see the nature of the false prophets. And to Peter. Places where we were last week in this presentation. The Pharisees, they didn't come to be baptized by John. They came to investigate why he was baptizing. This is evident in Luke chapter 7, where it says, For I say unto you, among those that are born of woman, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God, being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized by him. And the Lord said, Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation? That word can be translated race. And to what are they like? They are like unto children, sitting in a marketplace and calling to one another and saying, We have piped unto you, and you have not danced. We have mourned to you, and you have not wept. For John the Baptist, he's the mourning. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you say, he has a devil. The son of man, he's the piping, right, the party. The son of man is come eating and drinking. And you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners, regardless of how they were approached, the message of Christ would be rejected by these people. They were not his sheep, and they could never hear his voice. They were bad trees. That means they had bad roots. They had bad roots because they were not from God. That means that there are people here which God did not create. Actually, most of the people here on this planet, God did not create. They were not a sheep. They could never hear his voice. They had no chance for repentance. For that same reason, they rejected the baptism of John and sought to challenge his authority to baptize. Let's read Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. He that is not with me is against me, 
And he that gathers not with me scatters abroad. He came to gather sheep, right? If you're gathering something else, something other than sheep, if you're gathering little half-Cherokee bastards or Dutch Jews into your congregation, you're scattering. You're not gathering at all. You're scattering the sheep. Wherefore, I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. You know, we have to say something about the words of Christ here. He does not just randomly change the topic. Christ is not a, a, some kind of um, ditzy scatterbrain that just gives these long dissertations and randomly changes the topic, going from topic to topic, and each verse or, or each sentence is not connected to the previous one. That's not Christ. He's not changing the topic here. The topic, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, has not changed in Matthew chapter 12, verse 31. If you're trying to bring anything but sheep into the sheepfold, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what you're doing. If you're trying to let a bastard, a half nigger, a quarter nigger, a quarter Indian, a quarter Cherokee into the assembly of God, you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That's what you're doing. He, let, let's read this again. Christ isn't a scatterbrain. He's not changing the topic. He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathers not with me scatters abroad. Wherefore I say to you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. The warning in verse 31 of Matthew chapter 12, is directly connected to the action described in verse 30 of Matthew chapter 12. You want to bring aliens into the congregation of God. You want to look aside at somebody's half-Filipino kids. You, you want to allow somebody to bring half-squat monster kids these yellow monkeys into your congregation? Are they sheep? No. Are they Israel? No. Are they half-Israelites? Sorry, no such thing. I never saw the term half-Israelite in Scripture. If it's half-Israelite, it's not kind after kind. Unless the other half is just as Adamic as well. If you're bringing anything other than 100% sheep into the congregation, you're committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Because Christ is not a scatterbrain. He's not changing the topic from verse 30 to verse 31. Verse 32. And whoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him. 
neither in this world, neither in the world to come. You want to talk about people in Daniel 12 who arise out of the dust in everlasting contempt, the lack of a reward in the kingdom of heaven, insisting that God accept your half-Filipino kids, that's the way to do it. Either make the tree good. How does a man make a tree good? I'll tell you how. In bed with a woman. That's how a man makes a tree. That's the only way a man makes a tree. Either make the tree good and his fruit is good. Or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit is corrupt. And how does a man make a corrupt tree? In bed with an animal, a beast. Like a beast from the Philippines. Or a beast from Rome Mountain. Either make the tree good or his fruit and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And once again, that word generation should have been rendered as race. If trees are allegories for men, which can certainly be established, then there are men who cannot possibly repent because bad trees cannot produce good fruit. And if bad trees cannot produce good fruit, then their seed will be bad forever, and never will their descendants be good. Understanding these things, we must keep them in mind when we read the rest of Scripture. However, we also have an obligation to study the Old Testament and determine why it is that these things could be so. So when we discover these things and the gravity of them, we should be going back through the histories and the Old Testament and try to figure out how these wicked, bad people that can never repent, who aren't from God, how they got into the government in Jerusalem. We'll examine some of those passages shortly, and others in the weeks to come. First, we're going to read another account, two records of the same account, one from Matthew and one from Luke. From Matthew, chapter 23. Verse 27. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but are full within, full of dead men's bones, and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchers of the righteous 
and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore ye be witness unto yourselves that you are the children of them that killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents. The first law of God is kind after kind, right? Ye serpents, ye generation. That word in Greek is genema. It means offspring. Ye offspring of vipers. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? They can't. Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you shall kill and crucify, and some of them you shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel, unto the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Verily, I say, it unto, I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. And that word is genea, and it means race. The same account from Luke 11, verse 44. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you, are as, for you are as graves which appear not, and the men that walk over them are not aware of them. Then answered one of the lawyers and said to him, Master, thus saying, thou reproachest us also. And he said, Woe unto you also, you lawyers, for you laid men with burdens, grievous to be born. And you yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. Lay burdens upon man and offer no assistance. Woe unto you, for you build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly you bear witness that you allow the deeds of your fathers, for indeed they killed them, and you build their sepulchres, or sepulchres. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed for the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. The word is genea, its race. From the blood of Abel under the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. And once again, the word is genea, or race. Woe unto you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in, you hindered. And as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently, and to provoke him to speak many things, laying wait for him, and seeking to catch something out of his mouth, that they might accuse him. How could there be people in Judea accounted as Israelites, yet who could be held responsible for the blood of Abel? Who killed the Old Testament prophets? That these people are also responsible for the blood of all the prophets. The universalists of the mainstream denominational sects, 
may read these words of Christ on the surface and imagine that Israelites did these things. However, Christ is referencing a particular race, a Ganea. In both of these passages, the word race is attested twice. And the King James has generation. That race which Christ references must be connected to Cain. There's no way around it. Because only Cain, Seth wasn't even born yet, only Cain can be justly held responsible for the blood of Abel. One place, however, where our answers may be found is in the epistle of Jude. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Christ and called, in Christ Jesus and called. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that we should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. The Old Testament faith, right? For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Now these men, if they crept in unawares, they're not Israelites. They can't be Israelites because they wouldn't be described as having crept in unawares. It's that simple. They can't be Israelites by any means. All of Israel is appointed to salvation. These men were before of old, ordained to a condemnation. They can't be Israelites under any circumstances. Wow. Ungodly then, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God who denies the Christ, they are the Antichrist. And our Lord Jesus Christ, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you knew you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not, and the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. They can't be Israelites either. In fact, Jude is actually equating them to these men who crept in unawares, as we will see later in the epistle. But here he, he, he also equates them to fornicators. Even as the angels who left their first estate, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Of course, going after different flesh. Fornication is race mixing. That's the way Paul treats the word in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That's the way 
Jude treats the word here. Likewise also, be filthy dreamers. He's talking about the same people, the same entity, the angels who left their first estate. The subject has not changed. Likewise also, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, which certainly is a reference to the law. Does not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil. It's a reference back to the same entity. The subject of this epistle, the angels that left their first estate, the men of old who crept in unawares. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. I'm sorry. I already read that. We'll skip across. We'll skip over to verse 10. The subject is the same. But these speak evil of those things which they knew not. But what they know naturally as brute beasts and those things they corrupt themselves, woe unto them. For they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward. These are references to race mixing. And perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Korah was an Israelite, but he tried to set up his own priesthood opposed to the priesthood which God ordained for Aaron's son, Eleazar. These, the same people, the men who crept in unawares, ordained of old for destruction, the angels which left their first estate, these are the same people that Jude is referencing here, these are spots in your feast of charity when they feast with you. So these people are walking around in the first century. And they're walking around today. Feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water. Whited sepulchers. Beautiful on the outside and full of dead men's bones. The analogy is the same. Carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withers. They're bad trees. They can't produce good fruit. Without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. They're twice dead because when they're dead physically, well, they're whited sepulchers being full of dead men's bones. They don't have the spirit of Yahweh imparted to the Adamic race. They're twice dead when they die, physically and spiritually. Raging waves of the sea, foaming out of their own shame. Wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of thee, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. 
to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly to, to convict would be a better translation <laughs> of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts and their mouth speaks great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. The Apostle Jude describes certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men. By these he means those same antichrists whom John describes, where he says that they are denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ those people who were born of the world, as John describes them in 1 John chapter 4, and who denied Christ. Jude equates these to the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, who are certainly the rebellious fallen angels of Revelation chapter 12, of whom Jude says here that Yahweh God is reserved for the blackness of darkness forever. Jude then says that Yahweh has reserved them in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. But then Jude supplies language telling us that they're walking around with us. So those chains of darkness are not literal. These aren't a couple of men with wings buried in a pit in Arabia. These are men walking amongst us while at the same time being chains of darkness or being locked under chains of darkness. The evident result of their corruption of God's creation in race mixing. Everywhere we see the judgment of the great day in Scripture, whether it be described in the Revelation or in the Prophets, we see a description of the judgment of all of the enemies of Yahweh God who are gathered against the children of Israel. All of the world's other nations gathered against the children of Israel. That's going to be what the judgment of Yahweh is, their destruction. And they, therefore, must be those people who are reserved in everlasting chains of darkness for that day of judgment. Why the hell can't so-called Christian identity pastors put that one together? They, they still think Satan's floating around in heaven. That's why. They're throwing you this... Um, distraction that Satan's floating around in heaven. Satan's floating all around you, all right. Anybody that's not white is basically a Satan. Jude continues to liken these interlopers to those of Sodom and Gomorrah, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. That's what they did. That's what they've done from the first rebellion and calls them dreamers who defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Then he says that these speak evil of those things which they know not, so they can't be Israelites, but that what they know naturally as brute 
feasts in those things, they corrupt themselves. So we see that the Apostle Jude draws a direct connection between those who would infiltrate the kingdom of God, the fallen angels, and race mixing, and calls them brute beasts who have corrupted themselves in race mixing fornication. Jude continues to describe them as having gone in the way of Cain, who was a bastard, and the error of Balaam, which was race mixing. Now you know why it's so evil to be not gathering with Christ where you are caught scattering instead. Now you know why Christ himself in Matthew chapter 12 basically warns those who aren't gathering with him about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is mixing other races into the children of Israel, violating the spirit of holiness which God commands of the children of Israel. Therefore, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, in simpler terms, is the promotion of race mixing. He who is not gathering with me scatters. The apostle then calls these same people spots in your feast of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds without water, carried about of wind. Trees whose fruit withereth, without dead, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming out of their own shame. Tell me that doesn't sound like a screaming negro. Wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Jude makes a reference to Enoch after that, who described the fallen angels who had been the authors of miscegenation. Jude describes fallen angels who had committed fornication and for that reason became bound in chains of darkness. Jude calls them natural brute beasts. The Apostle Peter in his second epistle talks of these same people. He says, but there were false prophets also among the people. So we see where their false prophets came from. They were not Israelites. They were intruders. Even as there shall be false prophets, false teachers among you, like the Jew from Chicago and a million others, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. He also compares them to the angels that sin, whom God cast down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Then he calls them natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. So Peter's reference to hell is not literal. It's allegorical. 
And the proof of that is where he calls them spots and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. So they're cast down to this allegorical hell, bound in chains of darkness, but according to Peter, just like according to Jude, there's spots and blemishes while they feast with us. Having eyes full of adultery and they cannot cease from sin. So they're walking, they're walking around us. Beguiling unstable souls. A heart they have exercised with covetous practices. Cursed children. And Peter also proceeds to explain that they have followed in the way of Balaam. Which was fornication and race mixing. He then says that these are wells without water. As Jude called them, clouds without water. Broken cisterns. That are carried away with a tempest to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh. Through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. With these explanations by Jude and Peter, and with Christ himself describing those who killed the prophets as a race, a race which was also responsible for the blood of Abel. We therefore have an obligation to examine the histories of the prophets of the Old Testament in order to determine how such things could be because these things are not untrue. That is the crux of what we would consider to be the, the basis for 2C lines. While it starts with Genesis 3.15, it certainly does not end with Genesis 3.15. Now that we have the understanding of Jude and Peter, we can read this passage from Matthew chapter 7 once again, from verse 15. Beware of false prophets. There were false prophets among the people, men ordained of old to destruction, infiltrators. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves, raging waves of the sea. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns? Or Israelites from Filipinos, right? <laughs> or Israelites from Cherokee Indians. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit. But a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Regardless of how big a sinner 
your brother is. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings forth, that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. If a bad tree cannot produce good fruit, and if a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, since all men sin, it's not sin which makes us good trees or bad trees. These descriptions cannot be referring to mere individuals and their behavior. These must be racial references. And especially since John already, since we've seen John testify, that the axe was already laid to the root of these trees before him. Understanding the racial truths of Scripture is the only way that all of these various passages are coherent. One function in the program cannot contradict another function, or the program itself crashes and fails. Yahweh God will not crash and fail. Men are constants by their origins. Men are not variables. You can't, in your computer program, you can't take a function that, that's receiving an, that expects to be receiving an Adamic man and plug in a Filipino. The program will crash and burn. We're going to read the program. We're going to read Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the wheat and the tares. I know we just read it recently. I'm going to read it again. It's compulsory for two seed wine in the New Testament. Another parable he put forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. When Yahweh planted that garden and placed Adam in it, the tree of knowledge of good and evil was right there. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. That started with Cain. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? From whence, then, has it tares? And he said unto them, An enemy has done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. Cain was the beginning of the process of the soiling of the Adamic race. He wasn't the end. He was the beginning of that process. The explanation of this parable in verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away, and went into the house. 
And his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said unto them, He that sows the good seed is the son of man. To understand that, we have to understand that Yahshua Christ is Yahweh God come in flesh. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them. A lot of people would like to say, well, this is all referring to the gospel. It's not referring to Genesis. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The bad trees were already there with John the Baptist. The tares were already long sown before the gospel. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend. That's every bastard. A bastard has to fall under the category of all things that offend. Because the creation of a bastard is a transgression of the law. And them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire, there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. I hope you're listening, Bruce Corman. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who has ears to hear, let him hear. A clear line can be drawn in Scripture from Cain and the Kenites and the Rephaim. And that's part of the... The Rephaim are part of the ongoing process of sowing tares into the wheat which occurred in Genesis chapter 6. And the flood occurred to destroy the children of Adam who had been participating in the race mixing. But the flood didn't destroy the Rephaim. It's very clear in Genesis chapter 15 and in several places with the story of Goliath, who was one of the Rephaim in the book of Samuel, and the destruction of the brothers of Goliath in Chronicles, who were of the Rephaim. They had chariots of iron, the children of Israel couldn't, didn't want to fight against them because they thought they were too powerful and too large. The Rephaim appear many times in Scripture. And they were the product of the Genesis 6 event. They weren't destroyed in the flood. The Kenites weren't destroyed in the flood. And we could draw a clear line from Cain through the Rephaim and the Kenites who mingled with the Canaanites. And the Kenites also mingled with Judah. They were the scribes mentioned in two Chronicles. In, I'm sorry, in one Chronicles chapter two. They were scribes in Judah. And we could go from there to the descendants of Esau 
who intermarried with the Canaanites, and Judah, who took a Canaanite wife, and see how these false prophets were among the people all the time, as Jude and Peter attest. And those false prophets among the people were responsible for the murder of the prophets in the Old Testament kingdom. When Daniel, in the story of Susanna, found two corrupt priests who attempted to pervert the morals of a certain young woman, he exclaimed, O seed of Canaan and not of Judah, beauty has deceived thee, and lust has perverted thine heart. So the story of Daniel admits that there are even priests in the captivity in Babylon who were really of the seed of Canaan and not of Judah. The prophets tell the story of how, as Jude puts it, certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men. These things can be understood only by inspecting and accepting the entire scripture. They cannot be understood in isolation, where we only read and interpret one small event at a time, the way the Judeo-Christians do. They read a line of, of, of scripture, and they interpret it the way they want. These things can't be discerned in that manner. When you consider a function in a computer program, and you consider interpreting it or changing it in a certain way, you have to go examine the entire program and everywhere that that function might affect the whole rest of the program. The same thing with the Bible. When you consider a statement by Christ, a statement by one of the apostles, by one of the prophets, you have to think about everywhere in the Bible that that statement affects when you come up with a particular interpretation of it. Because your interpretation can't conflict with the rest of the Bible. Malachi chapter 2. But you are departed out of the way, from verse 8. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith Yahweh of hosts. Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. Now, this is a rhetorical question. The people that Yahweh is speaking to. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? And then verse 11 is an answer to those questions. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh, who he loved, and has married the daughter of the strange God. Yahweh will cut off the man that does this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob. 
and him that offers an offering unto Yahweh of hosts. Judah was corrupted because Judah married the daughter of a strange god. The prophet's making a prophecy, and he's using Judah as an example in the prophecy. And when the iniquity of Judah is, un- is uncovered, the people say, have we not one father? Has not one God created us? Well, this is basically the same assertion that the Pharisees, who were continually debating with Christ and contending with Christ, had made in John chapter 8. Malachi is telling us why these problems were going to happen in the ministry of Christ. Because of the race mixing in Judah. And Judah the patriarch married the daughter of a strange god. And there were always Canaanites in Judah for that reason. Among other reasons. And later on, Judea would symbolically do the same thing when they absorbed the Edomites into the kingdom. They, too, married the daughter of a strange god. And that was the cause of all the division in the New Testament. And we will examine that more deeply when we continue this series in two weeks. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, and good night. We'll be back here in two weeks with part 24 of this series, I think, or maybe part 23. I'm sorry I've lost count. Next week, on Friday, I'm going to have an open lines program and take phone calls. I will not, I will not entertain the clowns that have been trolling my forums, when they call in, you're just going to be abused and hung up on. So, and, and later on, I'll cut that minute out of the recording. So don't even try it. Don't make yourself look stupid. We know you're Jews. If you call in and try to harass me on a call-in program, you prove that you're Jews. My enemies prove that they are Jews or working for Jews, when they troll my venues, my chat pages, and my forums. Everybody sees it. You cannot hide. You're trying to turn Christian identity into a circus. The clowns cannot hide at a circus. You stick out like sore thumbs. Next Friday, open lines. I will entertain any constructive calls from any white brethren. Even if you disagree with me, as long as you're white. On Saturday, I will have Swen Longshanks from the Daily Stormer, um, arianisrael.wordpress.com, and Fast Sovereign. I think dot blogspot dot co dot uk. The, the links to Sven's um, websites are on the event schedule 
on, on the event for next Saturday, which is already scheduled at Christagenia, there's a link to the events and a calendar on the top menu bar. The, um, it'll be on the front page by next week, by, by program time. The, the um, event calendar at Christagenia is already filled out, so it's there. If anybody wants to check out Swen's website before the program or is writing it in the Daily Stormer before the program next Saturday, the links are already in place. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night. And to hell with the bastards and all the clowns that try to get us to accept them. You're all blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Thank mm-hmm. you.